following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Okay, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning is where we're going to be um, and continue this study in this really challenging chapter. I told my wife years ago that uh, many times as I grew up in the church and I started doing ministry when I was 19, I found that, that most of my ministry was helping Christians understand how to live loyal to their king. Um, I told her, I said, in putting it in my own Dave York vernacular, I said, I sometimes feel like most of my ministry is trying to help Christians to stop being stupid. And because we have a tendency to do some of the wackiest and most bizarre things, and this isn't talking about bumper stickers or Christian radio, where we could go that road somewhere else other time. But you think about it. I mean, we become captive to our own sin really easily, and it can be things like immorality. In our marriages, we, we have a tendency to, to fall prey to our own emotion and our own feeling rather than what does Jesus say as our king and how does he want us to live our lives? In our finances, we become dominated by desires for stuff. And in a few short years, we're hawked in debt and we're feeling hopeless. When we're parenting, we become overwhelmed with our hopes and dreams for our kids, that they'll never miss out on certain activities of life. And we become less concerned about the eternal soul. And much of the Christian life that I found is learning and understanding what it means to be loyal to Jesus and living life because of that. It's, it's about growing in our appreciation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf and living in light of that truth and because of that truth. It's really about covenant loyalty. It's about understanding that we have been called by God, bought with a price, and we are we are in a relationship with Him that is a covenant relationship where we're loyal to Him. So, so when we're loyal to Jesus, we would not dare be caught giving into sinful passions or worshiping false gods. We just wouldn't do it. And that's what we're going to learn today. So if you're new with us, you should have got a, an outline or a bulletin when you walked in the door. On that outline, there's a big idea. And here's the big idea today that I want us to get. Christians share in the benefits of Christ and are loyal to Christ. And because of that, we don't give ourselves to idolatry. Christians share in the benefits of Christ and are loyal to Christ. And because of that, we don't give ourselves to idolatry. So let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 15 through 22, and then we're going to pray as we're standing. It'll come up on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. This is the reading of God's Word. Follow along with me as I read it and let the Lord stir your heart with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For because we... For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who make the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? 
that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Father, in a, in a sobering text you've given us, you, you want us to learn how to be people who live as if Jesus is our king and that we're loyal only to Christ. And so I pray this morning you would not only help us to see where we have failed in this, but also, Lord, reveal to us the hope that we have in Christ and the power we have in Christ to be radically different. <clears throat> so I pray today that you'd give us wisdom today. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word for your glory and the good of your people, the advancement of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Now let's start by looking at the problem, the idolatry problem. If you were with us last week, and even if you just take a brief glance over 1 Corinthians 10, you're going to notice that idolatry was a problem in the city of Corinth. Verse 7 is explicit. Do not become idolaters as some of them did when they ate, drank, and they rose up to play. Now this is in reference to the people of Israel in the Old Testament when they were delivered out of the slavery and tyranny of Egypt by God's miraculous hand, and God led Moses to lead them out. There's a moment in that journey when Moses went up to the top of a mountain to meet with God, and as he's meeting with God, God's delivering to him the Ten Commandments. And the people begin to get impatient and frustrated that Moses was not coming down off that mountain, and they decided, let's make for ourselves our own, our own golden image to bow down to, and they threw all their gold into a fire, and according to them, out popped this calf. And they begin to worship this golden calf and do all manner of immorality and and evil and and idolatry before the Lord. And that's the example Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 10. And from that point on in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 8 through 10, Paul talks about the fruit of their idolatry, their immorality, them testing Christ. They, they, they grumbled against the Lord. And then finally in verse 14, Paul makes it really clear, told the Corinthians to flee from idolatry. So chapter 10 is all about the issue of idolatry. Now, what's interesting about this idolatry issue is chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians are actually one argument that Paul is making. And I want you to notice where this argument started and this debate started because it'll help you understand what Paul is doing right now. Notice what he said in chapter 8, verse 1, when he wrote to them, Now concerning food offered to idols. We've talked about this before in our study, that the issue, this issue arose because in Corinth, there was this huge temple to the goddess of love in the backdrop of their city. It literally over, oversaw everything in the city, and it was where much of their culture was done. And at that temple, animal sacrifices were done, and that meat was served at these idolatrous feasts that they would have at the temple. But the meat that wasn't sold at the temple, or wasn't used at the temple, was then sold in the marketplace on Main Street, and just random people would go by and buy meat sacrifice to idols, they'd take it home, cook it up, and they'd serve it to their friends. Well, in the church in Corinth, what began to happen was a debate rose up. Is it right for Christians to buy meat, sacrifice to idols, and eat it in their own homes? And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, makes it very clear. You're free to do that, 
However, there may be some other Christians who don't think that's an appropriate thing to do, so don't feed them meat sacrificed to idols when they come to your house. So an example would be, Dave and I are friends. I know that Dave does not like, feels like it's a sin against God to eat this meat sacrificed to idols, and I invite him over for dinner. And as he comes over, he goes, what's for dinner? And I throw out before him a big old meaty steak, and I say, that was sacrificed at the local temple. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about. This issue where brothers and sisters were fighting over what we call Christian liberty or Christian freedoms, and yet they were bickering about it. And so Paul's original comment about this and his original answer is, a Christian's free to do that. However, don't force another Christian to do it, and better yet, If you need to give up meat for the love of your brother or sister, do so. Well, that's where this issue started. But look where it's ending in 1 Corinthians 10. It's ending with the issue of idolatry and sin. In other words, Paul used the meat issue to get to the real meat of the issue, which is idolatry and sin. What was happening, got that? Everybody caught that one? Okay, just make sure you caught that one. Okay. Paul took meat and said, the issue is really not meat. The issue is you are subtly compromising as you go to the temple to engage in these festivals. And so what Paul's going to get to is he's going to show us why that issue is such a problem. Now, the Corinthian Christians, you can understand maybe why they were compromising. They thought that because they were baptized into Christ, they took the Lord's Supper, that they were inoculated from the sin of idolatry that was going on at the local temple, and they were free to go because they had done the church thing throughout the week. You can notice this in verses 1 through 5 as Paul uses them as an example. And notice what he says very clearly. He says the Israelites were all baptized, they all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, yet many did not make it to the promised land. And Paul uses this example for us to learn a very clear lesson. Just because you're baptized, just because you took the Lord's Supper at church, doesn't make you immune from idolatrous disaster. Now notice with me before we go any farther, how absolutely critical this is for us as Christians today. If we're not careful, we can get into a slippery slope of subtle compromise by thinking things like this. I've gone to church this week, so I'm good. I've done my devotions today. I'm safe. I've taken the Lord's Supper at church. Therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm not, there's no danger of sin for me. That's the kind of attitude Paul is, is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This attitude that sees spiritual things like we do here as a vaccine, if you will, to keep us from sin. And there's two dangers I think we have to be aware of. One is we must never, never, never underestimate the power, the tempting power of sin. We must never underestimate the tempting power of sin. Sin is always lurking, waiting for a moment for us to not be on guard and not be on alert. And there's another danger, is we must never overestimate our ability to withstand the idols of our heart and the sin that is before us on our own. As we'll see more in a moment, we we may not have a temple like they did in the backdrop of their city, but we most certainly have idols of our hearts or cultural pressures that we better be on guard against or else they're going to capture us and they're going to capture our children. So that's the idolatry issue. Now let's look at duplicity being exposed in our next point. And what duplicity means is 
living one way in church and one way in the world. And notice what Paul says in verses 16 through 20. It's really fascinating. What Paul does is he takes the very issue that the Corinthians were using for cover. Taking the Lord's Supper meant they could go on to the temple and do whatever they wanted to do. He takes that very issue and he uncovers it to reveal that's actually the solution to your problem. Let me show you what I mean by that. Rather than the Lord's Supper being an inoculation against idolatry, Paul shows us what the Lord's Supper is really all about. Notice 16 and 17. He says, the cup we take is participation in the benefits of Christ, blood. The bread we take is participation in the benefits of Christ's body. Verse 17, we all as Christians, though we are many in the church, we partake of the same thing together. In other words, Paul is talking about how we are communing together. Notice a couple words he uses in this text. He uses the word participation, and he uses the word partake. Those words are from the root word of koinonia. Some of you heard that word. It means fellowship or communion together. Paul's point in this text is this. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are fellowshipping or communing with Christ and with one another. And we all, as Christ's people, are enjoying the benefits of Christ's blood being poured out on our behalf for our sins. And we're enjoying the benefits of Christ's life living in our place. And we're united to Him. And because we're united to Him, we're united to one another. And what Paul's saying is the Lord's Supper does not have some mystical, mysterious, spiritual power that protects us from sin or our idolatrous hearts. Rather, it is a covenantal, unified fellowship meal with Jesus and his people. Nothing more, nothing less. And we, when we take the elements of the Lord's Supper table together, it's about being in relationship, fellowship, and communion with Christ and his people. What Paul's saying is, that's what the Lord's Supper table is about. Now, the reason why that's important is he uses that explanation to expose why it was wrong for the Corinthians to be going to this temple seated up on the hill. Notice how he does it. Verses 20 and 21. He says, so when pagans then, or non-Christians, are at the temple and they sacrifice to an idol, they're offering that idol, that, that sacrifice to a demon, not to God. In other words, rather than fellowshipping with God, they're fellowshipping with a demon. And then he says in verse 21, the very clear conclusion, you cannot do both. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of demons. You cannot partake, there's that word partake again, of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So what Paul is doing is, he's confronting the duplicity of the Christian Corinthians. They thought they could do church things on Sundays and then go to the temple and do temple things the rest of the week. And Paul's point is, you cannot have both. You can't have Christ and her people and the temple and her people. You can't do it. It cannot happen. When they went to the temple feast, they were participating in temple idolatry. And Paul used the Lord's Supper to show them covenant loyalty is supposed to matter to Christ's people. We're in covenant and fellowship with Jesus and with one another. Therefore, we cannot go to an idolatrous temple and engage in that type of activity. Now this is very similar to an argument that Paul made in 1 Corinthians 6. I think we need to remember. When he was talking to the Corinthians about why they could not dabble in immorality. 
And here's what he wrote. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And we could say the same thing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're in fellowship with Jesus and his people. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, flee idolatry and don't go dabble at the temple with their idolatrous stuff. There is to be no duplicity in the heart of God's people bought with a price. That's what Paul's getting at. Now, this text is one of the easiest texts to explain. It's one of the most challenging to apply. There's a thing in biblical preaching that we talk about often, and there's two things you should do. You should exegete a text, which means explain what the text says, but then you should exegete your people. And one of the challenges with this text is to take this situation and put it into our current culture and climate here in the Western world, and in 21st century Roseburg, Oregon. I mean, I think for the most part, if we had a temple that sat on top of Mount Nebo, if you don't know where Mount Nebo is, you haven't been here long enough, we can explain that later, right? It's right near the Harvard entrance onto the highway. It's right there, the big hill right there. But if we had a temple like that on Mount Nebo, animal sacrifices, all manner of immorality being done, most of us in the room would be avoiding that. Matter of fact, knowing our church like I know our church, some of you would not even take the entrance on the Harvard entrance and you would drive old 99 to Winston and wouldn't even, you'd make sure that there was like a block that you couldn't even see the temple for fear that the demon might jump into your car and turn your radio onto Caleb, right? I mean, that would just freak you out, okay? It would just absolutely murder you, right? I get it, okay? So in that, you got to, okay, what are we, but however, let's say this. If you would go there, or if you fancy adult shops, drunken parties, and the like, this text is not very hard to apply. There is no place, no place in the life of the Christian who would participate in those type of activities and think that they are immune to being captured by sin. And if you're in that situation, Scripture would call you to repent and turn to Christ and believe that there is such power in Christ that you can be freed from that. We cannot go to those kind of places and be an active participant and yet believe that our faith in Jesus is real or that we'll somehow we're strong enough to withstand the temptation that we're about to face. You just can't do it. So if you're in that, again... Turn to Christ. There, there's, there's joy in Christ, there's forgiveness in Christ, and there's power to change. But there's an issue, though, that I want to draw out of this <clears throat> to just kind of apply it to us, most of us in the room. And, and it has to do with cultural pressure. For a moment, just, just go back, if you can, put yourself in the Corinthian, in, 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 in the city of Corinth. You've grown up in this city, and all you know is this temple in the backdrop. This temple, now listen clearly, was the place where culture happened. It was the place. If you wanted to be somebody, you had dinner there, you hung out there, you made your contacts there. There would be a fear in your heart of missing out. 
You would think, if I don't get in there and hang out with all the people that are there, I could miss out on being somebody. Or miss out on what is happening in our city, and our culture, because that's where it all happened. And this cultural pressure, we could put it in another way, this peer pressure, this fear of man, fear of not advancing socially, economically, or relationally, I can imagine was a deep, hard temptation on these Corinthians when they thought to themselves, what do I do about going to this temple? And to be honest with you, in our culture, that that is more of a challenge for us than an actual physical temple sitting on top of Mount Nebo. It's actually probably more of what's behind our subtle compromises in the faith than it is anything else. Sometimes it's the fear of missing out. Other times, and it's especially true right now in our culture, it's the fear of being misperceived. I don't want to be seen as unloving or unkind or not saying something that would be harsh or I don't want to create a problem at the dinner table and I don't want to, and we begin to have this fear that comes over us of being misperceived and it tempts us then to attend certain parties or activities or events or watch certain forms of entertainment with a little bit of a too cavalier attitude and think that we're somehow immune to the temptation of sin because we went to church on Sunday or we did our devotions this morning or that we have more liberties than God allows for us. And sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, our loyalty to our fears of missing out or our fears of being misperceived overrules our our authority of Christ in our lives. Or our freedoms and our experiences that we want. Our kids have all these experiences overrules our loyalty to Christ. Gordon Fee put it best when he said this, and listen clearly. One cannot serve God and mammon. Notice that mammon was never mentioned in this text, but he uses it to explore a potential application. One cannot serve God and mammon or demons, listen to this, whatever form they may take in our modern world. Sitting at the table, which is the Lord's table, and experiencing its benefits of grace and freedom does not give one license or liberty for religious or moral licentiousness or lawlessness. So listen, if you are reading this, you're hearing this, and you're seeing in your heart subtle compromises in your life due to cultural pressure, and it could be family pressure, it could be work pressure, it could be friends, it could just be culture, the society around you, because you want to make an impact in your world, and you're going to dabble in certain things that you think you're, you're immune to, and you find yourself subtly compromising because of fear of missing out, fear of being misperceived, Paul's point is really clear. As a Christian, there is to be no greater loyalty in our lives than Jesus Christ. None whatsoever. What Jesus says is the standard of life. What he says is the standard. What he says goes. There is to be no greater loyalty to our lives in Christ. Now that's where I want to end today. I want to end actually where Paul begins. Notice how Paul begins in verse 15. He says something really fascinating. He says, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, here's what Paul has said. Before he gets into his argument, he says, Corinthian Christians, God gave you a brain. Use it. And I'm going to tell you 
the concern of you going to the temple. And you need to understand what taking the Lord's Supper and being with God's people really means. And what you're saying when you're saying you're a Christian and what that means to you going to this temple that's up on the hilltop. Or for us as Christians, we should say, we should be thinking for ourselves, what does God's word say to us about our loyalty to Christ or our loyalty to our fears? Or our loyalty to our culture? This is what I'm calling biblical common sense. Because if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time this is our challenge. I mean, think about it. Without putting yourself in the Corinthian world, does it make any sense to you? Any sense whatsoever that a Christian bought with the blood of Christ, knowing that Jesus was the final and ultimate sacrifice, would go up to a temple where they're offering animal sacrifices, and it's not to God, it's to an idol, without knowing, this is ridiculous, why am I even here? It doesn't make any sense. Yet, the cultural pressure, their upbringing, what was widely accepted in the culture, made biblical sense go completely out the door. And if you, if you can't look around right now and not notice that common sense, biblical common sense has gone out the door, you, you're really got to pull your head out of 2015. I mean, things have progressed or digressed, whichever way you want to look at it. It's happening all around us. I read this week a shocking statistic. In the Transgender Institute in the UK, 20%, 20% of the patients in that clinic are ages 3 to 10. And age 3-year-old children have the opportunity to get their gender changed without a parental consent. And we all go, have we lost our mind? Yeah, we've lost our mind. Does it make any sense to you? No, not whatsoever. Does it make any sense to you that a pregnant mother with a child growing up in her would want to kill this baby? Does it make any sense? If you've been paying attention to the news, you know what I'm talking about. That a pastor with a beautiful wife, loving family, a thriving ministry, impact all literally all over the world would be illicitly immoral? It doesn't make any sense. There's no biblical common sense to it. Why? Because when sin enters, I'm telling you, biblical common sense leaves the room. So to help us not be stupid, we, we should think through four questions before we, we do something, say something, post something, uh, watch something, listen to something. Just things to process. Just things to be thinking about. Because if Jesus is our king, and loyalty to our king matters. How does he, how does he think about the stuff that we want to do? How does he think about the activities that we're doing in our life? Or how does he think about the fears that are running rampant in us that we're afraid to say something, do something, and we're being dominated by those fears rather than dominated by the loyalty of Christ? So four questions I just want you to ponder with me for a moment. The first question is this, before doing this, Ask this question, is it forbidden by God? A quick look at the Ten Commandments will help you a lot. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't be immoral. Don't be a liar, lying specifically, falsely accusing a neighbor. Honor your mom and dad. And there's a few more. But the point is, those commandments are clear. 
They're very clear. They're written down. And to be honest with you, they, those commands are what everybody in the world, the history of the world, is responsible for and accountable to before God. Everybody. It doesn't matter if they like it or not. Everybody is accountable to that moral code, if you will, that God's given us. Now, other other forbidden things could be, like in the, we're seeing in the Corinthian text, don't go to idolatrous temple and fellowship and do the same things they're doing there because that dishonors God. Or another one, don't, don't let the marriage bed be defiled. Another one, don't get drunk. Don't, don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't, don't act out on, on your immoral desires, whether they're homosexual or they're, or they're heterosexual. Don't be bitter. Those are things that are all clear in Scripture. What God forbids, we don't do. There's just no question about it. Right? What I find a lot of Christians struggle with is they know God forbids it. They just go, I'll get by with it anyway. Big deal. Which we'll talk about more in a moment. Now listen, if you're doing what God forbids, let's call it what it is. The Bible calls it sin. Calls it sin. It's not a weakness. It's not, it's not a, well, this is just a genetic thing that my mom and dad taught me as I grew up. Therefore, it just kind of burst out onto the scene. No, it's sin. The Bible calls it sin. It's a violation of God's law. And the beauty of this is, even though it's sin, Jesus Christ has provided a way for us to be forgiven. So if you are doing things that God forbids, then I'm calling you to repent, to turn to Christ. If you're a child of God, confess your sin to God. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and give you power to change. So before you act, listen, is this forbidden by God? Second question, does it bother your conscience? <clears throat> now these are things not directly forbidden by God, but you feel like for you they are. You just don't feel right about when you do it. I'll give you an example from my life, which I think will help a little bit. 1997, I've been coaching baseball for two years. I was coming off of the second year of coaching. I was the league coach of the year. We had a fantastic year for a second-year club. And as the beginning of the 1997 season approached, I had a team that I thought was going to win a state championship. And the Lord made it very clear to me, baseball was an idol. And the reason why baseball is an idol is I loved winning more than my guys. I loved the game more than uh, honoring Christ. And it was shown by my actions. I was an angry, ridiculous coach, treating kids with, which awful, disrespectful, things I just grieve over. So I quit. I walked away from coaching. But I did not expect everybody else to quit baseball, and I didn't expect Major League Baseball to shut down because I did. The Lord had to go to work in me to eradicate something. Coaching baseball be, be, began to be something sinful for me in that moment of my life. Now with the Corinthians, what do you notice? It was meat sacrificed to an idol. Can they eat that at their homes? Paul says, you're free to do it. But some weren't. For us, it could be drinking alcohol. Not getting drunk, but drinking alcohol. Certain levels of entertainment. Different perspectives of modesty and clothing. Educational choices for your children. Or to put it in the world we're living in right now, whether or not you take the vaccine or not for COVID-19. That's between you and the Lord. I'm not going to stand up here and have her sign a code if they're not going to sign it or not going to take it. 
That's between you and the Lord. And it's not sin or, or righteousness if you do it either way. Here's the catch. If you cannot do a certain activity in faith looking to God, Paul's point in Romans 14 is, don't do it. But here's the catch. Just because it's forbidden for you doesn't mean it's forbidden for everybody else. See, that's what we love to do. We take personal convictions and we make them commandments. No, commandments are for everybody. Personal convictions are for you. So does it bother your conscience? The third question we should ask, does this activity glorify God? In other words, can I glorify God by doing this? Now, without giving too much away for next week's sermon, because we're going to cover a lot about this next week, when things are forbidden by God, it's clear you can't glorify God by doing them. Right? If it's bothering your conscience, it would not glorify God for you to do that activity. But what if neither of those things apply? It's not clear sin. It's not a conscience issue. Well, this question, does it glorify God? Can I glorify God doing this? should be at the top of your chart for thinking about how you do things. Because if our loyalty is to God, then God's glory and God's honor will be at the height of how we want to live our lives. So, is the way I'm acting at the sporting event pleasing to God, especially when the referee doesn't call a foul on my kid, or somebody fouled my kid? Or when the umpire is having a nightmare strike zone? Am I acting in a way that glorifies God? Can I enjoy this music while honoring God and hearing the music made by a non-Christian and hear behind the music a God who created this non-Christian making the music? Can I, can I see the head, the hidden hand of God behind this cheesecake? Or is this cheesecake gonna dominate me? Right? I mean, Listen, if you come from my world, you better think through those things, right? I mean, right? Is this way of communicating, honoring to Christ? What about this one? If I pursue that job promotion, is it about my glory or God's? See, at the heart of this question is devotion and loyalty to who we follow. Can I glorify God by doing this? Last question we should ask is, does it benefit others? In other words, what effect does my doing this have on other people? Now think about how opposite it is to your culture. Your culture says, if you feel right about it, go do it. Well, this says, actually, what we should do is, I may feel right about it, but it may be a disaster for other people. And we'll see again more about this next week, but there's lots of freedoms in Christ. More do's than don'ts. It's like, here's the guardrails, if you will. But one of the things we ought to be observing is, how our actions or our words or our attitudes are affecting others around us. So let me give you an example of this. In my life as a leader, I have a saying that I say often. My wife will tell you it's an evaluation tool for me all the time. And here it is. What I do as a leader, those who follow me will do in excess. What I do as a leader, those who follow me will do in excess. I have a firm belief I could walk right to the edge of the cliff and go, I got freedom to stand here. And I watch followers go right off. I'm like, well, that's not what I meant. What I do as a leader, others who follow will do in excess. Dads, how you respond in anger, just watch your sons respond in anger. You took it here, they're going to take it here. 
Moms, you if you're disrespectful to others, watch how your daughters act toward others. You took it here. They're going to take it here. Singles, listen. How you respond as a Christian when your non-Christian friends are watching you handle stress at work or all the activities that you might do together, just watch those non-Christians as you go right to the edge and just jump off the cliff after it. Because you could do it. You did it. Listen, I'm like you. I have a ton of opinions about the happenings of 2020. Tons of them. But not all of them are helpful for you to know. Just ask my wife. She would tell you. All right? They're not helpful. My staff was very careful when I would write a blog post throughout the week. I'd send that to those guys. They always proofread it. And they'd come back with usually once or twice a month. Uh, this section here, what, what, are you, what are you trying to get accomplished? Like, I just want people to know where I'm standing on this issue. They don't need to know that. This is not helpful. This is hurtful. This could ostracize people of the faith that don't stay in the same position. Be careful. Now, my point about this is, listen, they're most certainly not helpful for me to post or for me to use this pulpit to tell you about. In 2020, I had to ask this question often. Is this going to be a benefit to people I lead? Will it serve them? Will it edify them? Will it build them up in the most holy faith? Will it help them to see God in the middle of a crazy, messed up world? So does this activity benefit other people? Does this post benefit other people? Should be a guide to how we think about this thing. Now you'll notice all four questions are about biblical common sense. And you should weigh these things often. Does God forbid it? Does it bother my conscience? Does it glorify God? Does it benefit other people? Key questions helping us be loyal to Christ. Now let's close with verse 22. Look at this in your Bible. It'll come up on the screen. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Where does God's jealous, passionate, pursuing, disciplining love for you play in your life? Do you think you can do that thing in the secrecy of your own home and get away with it? Do you think you can keep sinning in the same ways and your jealous God not find you out and not expose it? Why do you think that the way that God wants sin confronted in the church is it starts small with one person, it's one-on-one, and if that person doesn't repent, the scope broadens. Until finally, it may have to be told to the church. Why is it done that way? Because God's pursuing jealous love says, you will not get away with this. And better yet, You may be embarrassed by the findings. This text should terrify us. It should make us realize two things. One, God loves you so deeply that he will not let you get away with it. I told my kids their whole lives, you can lie to me all day long. Guess what? God will find out if you're lying and I will find out. And if I find out before you've told me that you've lied, I will be a joyful instrument of God's discipline in your life. 
And by God's grace, every time my children lied, tried to cover up, all of a sudden, randomly, I'd get this weird email. Where'd that come from? And I'd say, hey, this came from your email. How did I get it? I didn't send it to you. I put it in my trash can. Oh, look at God. He put on your trash can, forward to dad. Why does God do that? Why does he do it? Because he loves you. Friends, listen, listen clearly. Your God loves you in Christ. He sent Jesus for you to pay for your sin, to be his own people. You are not your own. You belong to him. And you know what's proof that you belong to him? His jealous love is coming after you when you sin. He will come. He will not stop. The hound dogs of heaven, goodness and mercy, will follow you all the days of your life. And they're after you. And they're going to nip at you, and they're going to reveal to you your sin. And the more you run, the more God's going to say, fine, we'll just keep exposing you a little farther until all of a sudden you go, oh, my word, I can't even hide. Where does God's jealousy fit in your decision-making? Today, if you hear his voice, Hebrews says, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. As we're praying this morning, I just want to leave you in a couple things just to evaluate. The Lord knows you way better than I do. And right now, the Lord is just pinpointing a couple things in you, maybe. If you see the fear of missing out or the fear of misperception leading you to subtle compromise, would you just for a moment confess that to God and ask him for help to change? If you are dabbling in some of these idolatrous, immoral areas or ways, whether it be, fa- whether it be uh, it's, uh, it's websites or it's, it's uh, activities in our community, it's videos, would you right now confess that to God and ask God to help you? Maybe your attitude is you did church this week, you're all good to go. Would you acknowledge to God your self-righteous pride and confess to him that you need him? Father, we need you this morning. We, we need the power of Christ. Where we are in sin and where we are walking in things that are forbidden by you, would you, would you open our eyes to that, Lord, and convict us of that? You know your people. Help us to turn to you this morning. If we are in subtle compromise, and it's just little areas where we're just becoming okay with the sins around us, and we're just afraid to say something, or afraid to speak up, or afraid of being misperceived, and it's leading us to just subtly compromise, would you reveal that to us and convict us? Lord, would you, would you as well show us our, our pride where we, we think we are standing? Help us to take heed so that we don't fall. But Father, would you, most importantly, would you show us our dependence on you? We need the risen Christ today. Help us be a people that practice biblical common sense. And help us to do it for your glory, the good of others, and the advancement of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.